right, good morning, everybody. If you turn your Bibles to Psalms, that's where we'll be. All right, and I'm there finally. Psalm 14 is where we'll start. A um, couple announcements. Uh, let's see, potluck after second service. Uh, you can come back for that if you're interested in that. Um, we're providing the soups if you want to bring a sandwich or some kind of dessert or whatever. Um, and then tonight, uh, down in St. Joe at Grace Calvary Chapel, we'll be having a prayer night with them. Um, we'll be leaving from, if you want to drive down with us, we'll leave from the church here at five. Um, and then if you want to meet us down there, it doesn't start till six. So either way, but that's Grace Calvary Chapel down in St. Joe. We're going to have a joint prayer night tonight. Uh, teen night, Sunday, uh, March 27th from five to 8 p.m. That'll be coming up here. Uh, there'll be flyers in the back for you to grab and to remind yourself of. The women's luncheon is coming up. That sign-up sheet's out there. Um, and I'm sure there's something else out there that I saw, and I can't remember what it was. Garage sale. Garage sale's coming up. So keep your thoughts or your you know, ideas about that. Um, if you have things that you want to get rid of and you want to donate, that'll go to David Spencer's Africa Ministry. We'll be donating all the proceeds from this garage sale to that ministry. So that'll be coming up. All right. A lot to cover here. Uh, Psalm 14, 15, and 16, and then we have communion, and, and so we need to get at this. Lord, we pray for your word to just penetrate our hearts. Um, and as JC prayed, that it would change us, that, we'd, um, that we wouldn't just be hearers only, but doers afterwards, that you would uh, change our character, change us to be more like you, um, bring us into that place of holiness, because you're holy, and you, you want that from us. And uh, it's not for salvation, but from it. And help us to, um, out of gratitude and thankfulness of heart, uh, begin to change our lives to match up with what um, is pleasing to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. David was a man after God's own heart. As he writes these beautiful songs for us to read and to enjoy, um, he's trying to teach also in these. And there's always a little bit of doctrine in songs that we sing, a little reminder here and there. Um, and that's what they're for, to, to spark a memory or to spark a scripture in our minds that we've learned or previously studied, um, to get us to, to think the right way, you know. Um, it also gives us an opportunity to be open to the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When you sing songs um, enthusiastically, openly, focused, um, you're focusing on God and you're singing to Him, and sometimes you have to close your eyes for that so you're not distracted or whatever, um, there is that opportunity for us to have that open fellowship with God then. And he begins to speak to us by his Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful opportunity for us. And to take those opportunities every time we have them is, is to our benefit, um, to, to miss those opportunities, to somehow come in. Uh, I, I encourage people to start getting prepared for church, not at the moment of singing, but before you leave your house. So that when you show up to sing, you're prepared to worship. And it's not the worship time that's preparing you for the word, although it does do that. But it's the prayer time that you've had before worship, before the singing, that prepares your heart to fully give God everything you have. David does that. This Psalm 14, the folly of godless um, and God's final triumph. Um, he, he's going to talk about those who say they don't believe in God or don't believe that God exists and spread that heresy, that spread that. Um, idea. And it's to their own hurt. Uh, we just read that last Wednesday when we were studying. It's to our own hurt when we don't believe the Word of God. Um, we somehow think that when we submit to God that we're somehow giving Him something. And we, I guess you are. You're giving Him your will. Uh, you're giving Him 
the desires of his heart become the desires of your heart, and that's true. But God's word is a gift to us. It's a, it's a, it's a blessing. It, it's to our hurt to not obey it. And David understood that. So he sings a song about it. <laughs> the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand or seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's our first break. David calls them fools. We're told in the Bible not to call each other fools. Uh, It's a dangerous thing to do. And um, what both of those scriptures mean, this one and that one, that this says, do not call a man a fool. Um, it's, it's meant, this is an accurate description of someone who in their heart doesn't believe there's a God. They're a foolish person. They're a, a foolhardy. They're, um, they're flipping. Uh, you notice that when you're driving sometimes, people that are uh, foolhardy drivers. Think of it that way. You're not, you're not, you know, destroying their entire life or their entire entire reputation. You just say that that's a foolhardy move. You know, um, when I was a teenager, I did a lot of foolhardy things in my car, um, and 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 used to boast about them. But now I think you know, not so good to let those things out. You know, uh, to talk about those things. It was foolhardy. Now that I'm older, I realize the danger I put other people in. I remember coming home from a bonfire once, and I wasn't the driver this time. It was another friend who was being foolhardy, but we were all in on it. And we were in the back of the truck when you used to kind of be able to do that without getting arrested or whatever as teenagers. And he, not passing somebody, but just for the fun of it, went into the left lane on a two lane, and we just went over these hills. Must have been going 80 miles an hour. And I'm in the back of the truck looking over the bed at this time. And we're just, you know, bugs in the teeth. And I'm thinking, this is probably, and I, you know, you get that sense, shouldn't be over here. You know, I did have a little bit, it was there. But what am I going to do? He was driving kind of thing. It was a dead end, you know, so I don't know. I, don't, I can't make light of it. It was just absolutely foolhardy. Please keep in mind that although that was shocking to hear this morning, It's not nearly as shocking as those who say that there is no God. That's far worse than what I just described to you, what I was doing in that truck. Some people don't believe that. Far worse to say there is no God. Far more foolhardy to say there is no God. It causes them to be released from all responsibility, from all burdens, from all... uh, any kind of hedging in there might have been with that thought in the back of their mind that they were going to be held accountable to a God. Once you've convinced yourself and lied to yourself that there is no God, you are free to do anything you want to because you have no standard. Moral standards come from God, has to come from a higher position than us. If there is no God, and there are many that you know, proclaim that in a foolish you know, heart, then every human being's moral standard is equal. And it's up to them to decide what's right and wrong. You can't say my moral standard is higher than yours. You can't even say that the majority of the people agree that this moral standard is higher than others, which is what atheists try to do. They move in that direction. Well, we're going to do what the group thinks, and that's going to pretty much keep us, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt yourself or somebody else. Well, not everybody agrees with that. 
Not everybody agrees that not hurting you is to their best interest. And so they think that their moral authority is, I think, that sense, you know, evolution's real and it's the survival of the fittest. If you die at my hands, I mean, it goes on and on. When you say there is no God, you've done a far more foolish thing than what I described to you in my story. David knows that. And he wants us to sing that out loud. He wants us to hear it in our own ears from our own lips because we need to be reminded of that. That's what songs do. When you sing out loud, your ears hear them as well as the people around you. They're corrupt. That is the end of all who don't believe there's a God. They are corrupt. They will do abominable works. They will, absolutely. I think of all the charitable organizations that started off well. Most, up until recently, were started by church organizations, Christian groups. Most hospitals, most universities were all started by a Christian group and have since become corrupted in many, many, many ways, unfortunately. And it, and it came when they said that God doesn't have any place in this place anymore. The name, he's still on the name, but he's not in our decision-making and therefore, the place becomes corrupt. The place becomes abominable, whether that's a university or whether it's a hospital or any charitable organization, you know. But there are sense, there have been sense, um, in the name of mankind, charitable organizations that have started without God in its original intent, you know, from their, uh, from their statement of faith, <laughs> statement of purpose, I guess. I can't say statement of faith. Statement of purpose, they reject all religion. And they try to do the best they can do for as long as they can do it, but eventually the corrupt and the abominable begins to come out because people aren't loved. You can't love people without God. It's impossible. The love you need for people that God expects and that sustains itself is an agape love, which cannot come from us as a source. It has to come from the Lord. Any kind of love for have for one another is very temperamental. It's very fickle. Either it's eros, you know, it's, a, it's an emotional, it's a, it's a physical attraction, and that can change depending on whether you're in the mood or not kind of thing. Then there's phileo, there's a friendship thing until they do you wrong. And then that love is over with. And all these things, all these other loves other than agape love, which is unconditional love, are fickle and are fair-weather friends, and they don't last. So without God in the center of anybody's heart, their feelings and their emotions waffle, and they, and they, and they rage. Um, the pendulum swings sometimes in, in crazy extremes. God, he says in verse 2, looks down upon the children of heaven. I don't see anybody who understands or anybody who seeks God. David's not talking about himself. He's talking about those who say in their heart, there is no God. I look down at the people, the sons of men. I don't see anybody searching after God. Well, that's not David searching after God. He's not including himself in that. He's desirous of God. We're desiring God. We wouldn't be here if we weren't. What's the point of coming to this church service on a, you know, at 9 o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock in the morning if you're not here to seek the Lord? What's the purpose? What are you here for if it's not to seek God? So there are those that do, but he's talking about in the same, I mean, that's the subject, is these, these corrupt people, these abominable people. They've all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's none who, says, who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? It's a, it's a great, I mean, what a picture. 
the, the, the corrupt, the, the abominable, they, they, they eat people like they eat bread. Some people see other people that way. They see them as um, prospects, to use a term from my you know, industry that I'm in on the side. Um, I get that question all the time, and I, and I, I use it as a teaching opportunity. Not, nobody listens, but I, I do it anyway. It says, how do you do your prospecting for clients? I said, I don't. I don't prospect. Prospect seems like I'm digging and, and hammering and looking for gold and, and, and treat people like ore that need to be heated up. I mean, it's inappropriate. It's wrong. That's not what people are for. They're not prospects. They're customers or they're people that need help finding a place and you want to do your part to be a blessing to them and to represent them properly and to do the best you can to make their process as smooth as possible. There's nothing about finding them, prospecting them, but a lot of people see it that way, being prospected. We get information all the time that comes to it. I, I was going to say for one year, all the stuff we get in our church mailbox and let you guys, I'll, I'll lay it out on the table and let you see it all, you know how to get to be busting at the seams for your church, how to grow your church, how to prospect people, you know. It's like, uh, oy vey, you know. <laughs> this last, uh, when I got home from, if you saw the red dirt on my truck, it's because we were in Oklahoma uh, yesterday, and so there's red dirt all over my truck. We, and I got back, I got the mail, and there was, or maybe it was before that we left. Anyway, it doesn't make any, I get, I get crazy people manifestos in the mail. <laughs> I thought I'd save those two. This one was bound. I mean, they went to Kinko's, got it bound. I don't, does Kinko's still exist? They got it bound and sent to me, and it's called the seven eyes. I'm like, that's terrifying, you know? And I'm reading through this, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer book this guy's written. I'm like, ah, you know, security, <laughs> crazy, crazy stuff. Anyway, <laughs> in Second Chronicles chapter sixteen nine, God is looking for people. It says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. God is looking to perform His word. He's looking at people. He's scanning. Is there anybody? Sometimes we wonder: Is God ever going to move? I, he always wants to move. He's never sedentary. He's never sitting back saying, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, earth. You know, he's always looking over all the people. He says, is there anybody looking at me? Anybody want to do what I want to do? Anybody interested in changing their life towards what I've asked them to change? Not always asking me to change their life the way they want me to change it. Is anybody there? He's always looking. His eyes of the Lord, they go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. All those things are important. Every one of those words is a Bible study probably in and of itself. Verse five. There they are, these people who don't call upon the Lord in great fear. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. David is excited for the Messiah to come, you know, for him to be named, for him to show up on earth. He was always waiting and expectant. And as he looks at the world, he just says, ah, oh, I can't find anybody. That's his words. That's not foolish. They act like 
God doesn't hear or God doesn't listen or God's not paying attention. That's what these other Psalms are all about. And he's building upon those same thoughts. I walk around and all I can see is corruption, even from the believers, even from the Jews that I, that I rule over, you know? What, where are they as far as the Lord goes? And he's frustrated. He says, oh, God, just need you come back. I mean, and we all can identify with that, right? We're like, oh, Lord, just come soon, please. Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is a, it's the character of us. It's supposed to be anywhere. I love, I'll step over here because I love this. I love grace and I love mercy and I love God's forgiveness and I love that um, there aren't second chances. It's innumerable and that my nurse, God's mercies for me are new every morning and I love all that. And yet... <laughs> All that is true, but I'm not to live my life in such a way to magnify those scriptures. Look, I know I'm a creep, but isn't God merciful? The world doesn't want that. The world is looking for Christians and saying, is there any power in this gospel? Is there any power in this gospel? And they look at you and they're trying to see if there's a change because there are other formulas for change out there, worldly formulas, man-made formulas, and those look to be as effective as Christianity at times because there's no change in the person. And all we have are t-shirts that say, yeah, but I'm saved by grace. I'm not perfect. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Does that excuse you for cutting me off and being a creep while you're driving? No. Change. And so God, or David writes this psalm by the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? It's a question. Who can stand there? Who's supposed to abide? And now the answer for the most part in modern day Christianity is the gracious and the merciful and those who've been forgiven. And that's true. But look how David describes it, what he expects of himself. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money as usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. David's encouraging us, encouraging himself. Who gets to stand in the tabernacle without guilt and shame all the time? There's a a blessing associated with being obedient to God, to be not in rebellion against his word and against what he's told you to do, to walk in an upright way, to work righteousness or our highs, our, our spiritual highs that you never get enough of. It's wonderful to know when you've had victory. You, you, you cheer for yourself when you have victory. You like to tell people, well, you don't really tell people, hey, look, I didn't sin. Nobody really says that. But inside your heart, you're like, I made the right choice. I've made the right choice in a long time. I didn't go after my flesh this time. I actually did something spiritual instead of something fleshy. And we're excited about that. I didn't backbite. I held my tongue. I didn't join in the gossip. And boy, that's hard for me, but I didn't. God loves that. Not just forgiveness. He doesn't do evil. 
He doesn't reproach his friend. You know, this verse four is an interesting one to me. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Well, I don't despise anybody. I love all mankind. Yeah, but does the vileness of people cause you to despise? Do you despise it? It's okay to hate sin. It's okay to absolutely despise sin in your own life, but also in the lives of other people. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't know where we got the idea that God says, no, you need to be quiet about other people's sin. Don't despise them. They're a child of God. They are, but I don't like it when I see it in my kids. When I see them despising one another, when I see the ugliness that can somehow rear its head against themselves, and I'm like, no, that's not good. That's not going to happen. We're done with that right now. I despise that in my home. I despise that in my own life. There's nothing wrong with despising vileness in this world. Even Lot, and he's not the greatest example in the world, but he's in the hall of faith in the Hebrews. He's in heaven. But he was vexed. His soul was vexed every single day while he was in Sodom. Now, a lot of us would say, well, then why didn't he move? Why did he stay there? I don't know all those answers. I do know this, that the Bible documents that in his heart, he was... He was broken by it, hated it. We need to get back to that place, I think, if we've moved from it at all, to to despise that vileness in this world. Because if we don't despise that vileness, it's going to creep into our own lives, into our own families, and we're going to, we'll excuse it. We'll excuse it away. Verse five, he who does not put out his money as usury. Now, some people take that as just for interest. That's not true. It's exorbitant, exorbitant interest. It, 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 recently, when the, when the title companies came out, remember the title companies when they first came out, those cash, cash for you know, titles and all that stuff came out. Some of them were charging 400 to 800 annual interest rate, which, you know, you break it down and, you know, well, it's a lot, obviously. It, and so we made legislation. You can't charge that much. You can still charge 25% or 35% annual, but you can't do that 400. So, I mean, it's a little arbitrary as how they decided what's, what's crazy. Um, the idea behind verse five isn't just that. It's, it's the making of money through the misfortune of other people. There's a lot of ways to make money out there. I think as Christians, we should probably focus on those things and not necessarily on the misfortune of other people. It's a bad way to make money. It's just not, uh, it's not appropriate, you know? This usury, this saying, well, if you need money that bad, you'll pay it. It's not my fault you put yourself in that position, you know? But to capitalize upon it for your own gain, eh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. And, and that's, that's a personal thing. You've got to work that on your own heart where that level is. You know, legislation said 35% was, was, was okay. Most of us would be like, well, what? You know, well, it's better than the 400%. Well, that's true, but I don't know that 35 is the solution, but as it's better than, you know. And so you've got to come up with those, those boundaries in your own life. What is usury? What is, what is the wrong way to make money, you know, to gouge? It's, it's not appropriate. He who does these things shall never be moved, who, who doesn't do these things, who doesn't participate in those things. And isn't that funny? I mean, you, just, you can just not do the wrong thing, and you, you, you're in a good place with God. I, I didn't do. 
the opportunity was there and I didn't capitalize upon it. You know, whether that was gossip, tearing somebody down, or all the way up to the usury thing we just talked about. I didn't do it. And I feel good about that. Psalm 16 is a prayer. It's a prayer to God. That's why he says a, a, a mictum of David. It's a prayer or a, a meditation of David. It's about jealousy. A lot of it is anyway. Um, and who's come against him. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after God, after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Um, there were a lot of people that were against David. David seemed to have enemies on every side. And, and you look at his life and you're, you can't really figure out why, except for this jealousy, I guess. Um, even after David beat Goliath, there was jealousy in the ranks. Um, even after people started uh, proclaiming the goodness of this warrior David, whom Saul rightly put him in charge, even Saul got jealous that his general was getting more attention than he was getting. You know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands, and that produced jealousy. And David is just simply writing here, and this is important for all of us to understand. My soul. Uh, oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. If I'm blessed, all my blessings, they come from God. And David has always been faithful to give credit to God for anything that's come into his life that's good. And he never says, that's of me. That's of my own doing. At times he says, it's because I've been obedient to God. And he's not saying it's because I've been obedient to God, but anybody that's obedient to God finds himself in a place of blessing. In a place of obedience to God, that's a wonderful place to live your life. It doesn't matter who the person is or what the name is associated with that. Anybody. And so David doesn't understand this except that it comes from pure jealousy. But he says, everything I have is from God. So when people are jealous about the blessings or the gifts God has given to them or to others, they're angry with God. They're not giving God credit. And it's their sin, and it becomes sin in their lives. I think about the prodigal son who did nothing right. <laughs> I mean, he did nothing right. He didn't even apologize. He never got a word out of his mouth to ask for forgiveness, you know. And yet when he returned home after being such a creepy son to his dad, the fatted calf was killed, the ring was put on his finger, a robe was placed on him, there was a huge feast. Meanwhile, back behind the curtain was the older brother, you know, this brother. And that was the problem. And that's the point of the entire pro proverb. We, we love the first part, but the proverb's about this brother. And he says to him, he says, I, I, I never left. I've always been obedient. I, and you've yet to give me a fatted calf for my friends or let me have a feast for everything like that. And he was frustrated and jealous with what the father had decided to bestow upon this first son. And the father took it personally. He says, I've always loved you. I've always had you. I've, we've always had this relationship. I'm, I'm ad-libbing a little bit here, but you read it, and that's the idea. Is we've never had broken fellowship like that before. We've always been together. And it's offensive to God. And you say, you mean you're, I haven't given you enough? And you're jealous because I gave some? That's the whole parable of the, of the, 
of being paid at the end of the day. Some people came in the beginning of the day and they worked all day long. Some came at noon. Some came at the end of the day. He gave money to everybody. And everybody's mad because they didn't get more. God says, didn't we agree on a price? Yeah, but I thought, you know, because you gave them the same amount. They only worked like an hour. I worked eight hours. I got the same amount of money. Why are you looking at them at all? Just give thanks for what, what I've given you. Because I've met my obligation to you. I've met my, <laughs> my promises. I've kept my word to you. And that's all David is saying. He says, I, I, I didn't beat Goliath by my own hand. It was God. I, I didn't become king. king. Some prop, I wasn't even in the building. I was out watching sheep and some prophet said, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. And walked out to the field as I, well, didn't he came in, called, called the younger son in, bringing him in. David walks in saying, what is it? You know, what I miss? Who got to be king? <laughs> Dumped oil on David's head. You're the king. And then walked out. How is that my fault? <laughs> but his brothers were jealous. Joseph, just wanted to be obedient to his dad. Dad could trust him with the business. Don't storm off. You're going to storm off. <laughs> These guys had to go early. He said, should I storm off like I'm mad? And I said, yeah, do it. Do it. Get out of here. <laughs> Have a good day. They warned me ahead of time because they know how fragile my ego is. <laughs> Why are they going? Joseph, coat of many colors, faithful to his dad, could be trusted with the business and his brothers just hate him for that. But you know what? If they had been trustworthy, they'd have been wearing the coat. Now, Joseph doesn't necessarily say that out loud, but they know that in their heart. But instead of changing their character, their position with God, their relationship with their father, they're mad at the other person. So much easier. So much easier to be mad at the other person, this jealousy. And David's like, what? The goodness is all God's. The excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Those are the people, the people of God. It says they don't take up the drink offerings of blood. I'm not going to either. We're not going to hasten after other gods. When God says in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, I don't want you drinking any blood. I don't want you doing all that stuff. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the worship of other gods and their weird relationship with their other gods where they did drink this blood, things strangled. You know, we see that in the New Testament. And then they get the blood and they drink the blood in, in honor of these other gods. God says, don't do that. I don't want you worshiping other gods. That's the purpose of Leviticus 7, 26 through 28. And yet the Jehovah's Witness go door to door, have built almost their entire, one of their, one of their tenets of their faith is you shall not have a blood transfusion based off of Leviticus 7, 26 through 28. And thousands of people die every year under the Jehovah's Witness watchful tower because they didn't, and they consider that drinking blood. Nope, wrong heresy. And they go door to door and people buy it, along with many other things they do. And David says, look, just don't drink blood offered up to other gods. That's what we're supposed to avoid. I don't take up their names on my lips. I don't, it's not that I don't drink the blood. I don't. I, don't, I just choose not to. I don't, so, uh, he does both things here. Not only do I not participate, I just don't talk about them. I don't worship these other gods. I don't worship Satan. I don't worship Moloch. I don't worship these other gods. And David says, that's a wonderful thing for me when I don't even, they don't even come off of my lips. What a wonderful moment, he says. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, 
He says, for who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The things we have, the blessings we have, they all come from God and giving God glory. For me to apologize for, or for any of us to apologize for what God's blessed us with, um, is to apologize for God. And it's inappropriate. It just is, you know, um, it's not honoring to the Lord at all. It actually shows a sense of pride in your own heart because you think that the blessing has something to do with you when it doesn't. Um, but to stand there and say, ha, isn't it great? That makes people mad, it seems like. Well, you should apologize. You should tell me how good a deal you got on that. You should do something to diminish the blessing that it is in your life. It's like, no, it's totally expensive. It was such a blessing and such a shock, such a surprise. We're so thankful for it. And be... Give him honor, give him glory. Why diminish God's gift? Do you think when they showed up at Jesus, you know, Jesus' house and they gave him the frankincense and myrrh and the gold and everybody went, nice gifts. They said, well, you know, you know, um, no. Absolutely said, can you believe it? Isn't God good? Isn't God a blessing in our lives? Can you believe that? You need all that gold? Apparently we're going to. I don't know why, but hey, go to Egypt. I guess we're going to need that gold, you know? Thank goodness, what perfect timing. What a blessing. Verse five, oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. He remembers that and he gives thanks to God for all the things that God has done. Um, in Leviticus chapter seven, verses 26 through 28, I, I, I was gonna share that with you and, and I think I did, but I'll read it to you. Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings whether of bird or beast, whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. And the idea is because that is a pagan ritual as described in verse four there. All right, verse seven. I will bless the Lord who has given, given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night season. I have set the Lord always before me because he uh, is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. That's a promise. God wants it. I, I, we read this proverb, Proverb uh, 3. It's a wonderful proverb, but we read the, first, the five and six verses a lot, but I want to follow up with, you, you, you need to read the whole thing. All th- I don't have time for that today because we're doing communion, but all of Proverbs 3, okay? Um, it says this, tr- verse five, the usual, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. That's a promise. And there's more before that and there's more after that. Describe your obedience to God and your willingness to put him first in your life lead you in paths that are a blessing. It's a, the paths of righteousness. They just are. It goes on to say in verse seven, do not be wise in your own eyes, depart or fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. He goes on and on and on to describe what it means to walk with the Lord and put him first in your life. That's all David is saying. I've got a good inheritance. It's been a blessing to hear God's counsel. My own heart instructs me at night. He's always before me and I'm not going to be moved. It stabilizes my life. I'm not so flip-floppy. I'm not so up and downy, you know, I'm even, I'm tempered. It's wonderful. Verse nine, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. 
For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That should ring a bell. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That scripture that he used there in verse 10 is a prophecy, we believe, at least Peter thought so, about the Messiah. David is speaking about himself. I'm not going to be stuck in Sheol. Sheol is down before the cross. Jesus, when he died on the cross, descended into hell, Hades, for three days. And he led captivity captive. And this is one of those scriptures that seems to be fulfilled. And if you read that, it's in Acts chapter 2, verse 25. Peter is speaking to the crowd. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of your life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And then he describes what was meant there. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the first fruits or the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. Peter was bringing the psalm home. They had known it, they had studied it, they had read it, and they will never read it the same way again. When they get to verse 10 and they read this portion, they're going to say he was talking about the Messiah. He was talking about Jesus. David was prophesying. Well, we're going to have communion now. It went a little bit long, so it might take a little bit of time here. So you guys want to start handing that out, we'll, we'll do that. I'm so thankful for these psalms. I'm thankful for the opportunity to go over these with you. It's been a blessing to study so far. They're very rich. They're very deep. They're very from the heart. Very. I love it when people can just express in their own words what God has done for them. I, I, I'm all for quoting scripture and hiding it in your heart. And I think you absolutely should do that. But when someone can write something about the Lord like this, it, that's a testimony testifying, that's sharing scripture, and that's wonderful and very important. But to share a testimony is how that scripture is applied to your life and how it's worked in your life and what God's done in your life. And so David does that through all these Psalms. These are all testimonies of things he's gone through with his God, things that God has brought him through and that will bring us through as well. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave us this promise right here that we're we're sharing together this communion, we call it. We have a little cup of juice and this little piece of bread is to remind us of our, of our Lord, the sacrifice that he made for us, that our righteousness is apart from us. It's been given to us. It's God's righteousness, my entrance to heaven, the ticket, the ability to go and to be in the presence of God forever. It comes from him and what he's done for me and my faith in that. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's what this represents. 
The character that we read about in Psalm 15 is something that comes from that, comes from this moment right here. Reminded that he didn't die for my quirky character that I think is a part of me, that God's been trying to remove from my life for years. Sometimes we get to that place, we begin to convince ourselves that our sin is just who we are, our attitudes, our bad attitudes, our inappropriate attitudes are just something God made me. It's not true. Being conformed into the image of Christ is probably pretty easy at the beginning. It's, there's so much to work with. But as you begin to get refined more and more, it takes a little bit more heat, a little bit more focus, a little more attention to detail, and it causes a little more pride to go away so that you can give these things up. I hope we take that opportunity when we have these moments right here, that we don't just take it as another Sunday where we've had a cup of juice and a piece of bread and remember the cross, but remember that we're still being worked on. But although we're saved, we're being conformed, we're being changed. And to let God do that in us, to take away those more difficult sins, transgressions, things that have become a part of us and has been excused away. I'm going to take a little time here before we eat and drink to just kind of reflect on those things in our own lives and maybe confess them. Bring them to the Lord this morning before you eat or drink to let him work on those areas, to take those things away, lay them at his feet completely and we'll repent of them, you know? Let's take that time. Lord, we thank you for this time to be reminded that we're forgiven, that your blood has washed us of our sins and as far as the east is from the west, you've forgiven us of our sins. Help us with our character, God. Help us with our obedience our reverence, the holiness that we want to walk in. We desire that in our lives. So Lord, take away anything that's become almost permanent, root it out, chisel it out, pry it out of our lives, God, that we might be a holy vessel for you, more holy, cleaner, usable, Lord, broken. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.